Welcome back to Capitalize Your Fridays. I'm Taylor Dennis, Senior Wealth Design Specialist and VP of Altius Financial. And I'm Mike Williams. I'm the founder and president of Altius Financial and our podcast co-host. So today we're diving into some common finance rules and debating if it's really still a good investment strategy. But first off, hey, Mike, can you start with that disclaimer? So before we get too far along with this. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of investment advice or financial planning. No client advisor relationship is formed by our broadcasting this information or your listening to it. The use of this information or any materials linked to in this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not meant as a substitute for professional financial advice. If you're needing specific advice for your situation, please reach out to your certified financial planner. Or if you're interested in learning more about our firm, our people, or our philosophy, please reach out to us at our website, altiusfinancial.com, or you can reach us directly by email at michael at altiusfinancial.com or taylor at altiusfinancial.com. Okay, so today I kind of structured this as a bit of a Q&A type format. Mike, you've been in the business for 30 plus years, your wealth of knowledge, especially coming from a investment and finance standpoint. So I think you're kind of entering this with some preconceived opinions on, hey, is this a good rule? And what are our thoughts? So let's start off with just, I mean, what even is the 60-40 rule? That's right. I have lots of preconceived thoughts. <laughs> and and your job is to ask me questions and challenge those preconceptions that I have. And, and that's part of what we want to do anyway on this podcast episode is challenge some assumptions that people have used in the past as sort of guideposts or, you know, rules of thumb. And this is one of them. This is a big one. Uh, Mm -hmm. And it's coming under fire these days. Here in 2022, markets are not working for most people. The stock market, the bond market are both down. And so people are questioning how, how they're doing things in terms of asset allocation. And that whole 60-40 rule is based on an idea of saying, okay, let's, let's allocate capital, especially for someone who's retired or conservative, you know, needs to live off of some of their portfolio, needs to make it last. And the idea is 60% of your portfolio should be in the stock market, subject to the volatility, but also the greater growth potential that equities and stocks have. And then 40% would be allocated toward bonds that presumably have more security and more stability. Do we kind of want to dive into where you decide who has the 60-40 and how that adjusts with people's ages? Yeah, there's also this, and it's funny, um, when people are investing, they look for rules. They look for principles, right? They look for, okay, what is something that's worked in the past? What does the science, art and science of investing tell me to do? You know, if you're if you're saying, okay, I want to, I have some money, accumulated savings, I have a portfolio or a nest egg, I have something that I've accumulated in, in the way of wealth, and I want to preserve it and have it grow. What do I do with it? Where do I put it? How do yeah. I invest it? And we talk about, especially in our early in our uh, meetings with a new client, we talk about those principles and the philosophy of how you invest and how you allocate capital. There's first of all, there's different asset classes, right? Um, the general asset classes that people in, can invest in are stocks, or and, and we don't we don't even like using that term stocks. We like the term businesses because we want to remind people that they're actually investing in going concerns or businesses. But there's stocks, businesses, there's bonds or debts, 
And that includes government bonds, corporate bonds, CDs, all those kinds of things where you're basically loaning money to someone else for a fixed time period and a fixed interest rate. Then you have real estate and commodities and, and many other other kinds of asset classes. But the financial markets are typically characterized by stocks and bonds. And that's where you get this 60-40 mix. Now, you mentioned age, kind of the age rule. And a lot of times people are uh, have thought to say, well, have the decade that you are in age-wise. Yeah. So if you're in your 20s, then you have... 20% of your asset base in bonds and 80% of your asset base in stocks. And that means, okay, I'm in my 20s. I can afford to take a lot more risk, 80% stocks. And then if you're 80 years old, you flip that. You, know, you have quite a bit more in bonds. That has been one sort of rule of thumb that people use. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true. It depend, that, those rules don't take into account someone's income needs, their inheritance desires you know, for someone else. Obviously, when we go through financial planning, it's a lot more specific with regard to how a person should allocate capital. But this 60-40 mix has been a rule for a long time for people who are in their retirement, and it's coming under fire because it hasn't worked. I'm also kind of wondering, it seems like it's almost too vague on saying, here's what you need to do. I mean, there's no discussion on any other types of assets. It just kind of says, well, you've got stocks and bonds, Forget anything else. You're not going to look at maybe real estate. You're not going to look at precious metals. You're not going to look at cash. I mean, is is it really almost way too narrow to say? Or is that something where people can say, well, at least I'm close enough. Those are the big chunks. I think you're making a really good point. And I think that's, again, why uh, clients um, and investors should use someone who has more experience and more of a nuanced approach to allocating capital versus that kind of a you know, very simple rule. Now, again, sometimes simplicity is good. You know, uh, financial planners and investment advisors can overcomplicate things at times by you know, getting two. We want to have 1.3% of our portfolio in silver futures or 6.8% uh, you know, in emerging markets or whatever. And certainly in that 60-40 mix, you can say 60% equities and then you can say how much should be in large caps or how much should be in emerging market equities or how much should be in the U.S. versus Europe or, or value versus growth. You can carve it up in many different ways. But that general rule has been something that people have used. And, and again, I said it hasn't worked. That means lately. It has worked for a long time. But certainly this last year or two, it's come under fire. And I think that's important for people to recognize why, you know, why it hasn't worked this year. We've been under more of a... Uh, should I say adventurous or, um, well, different kind of Federal Reserve policy. Uh, we've had negative, interest, negative real interest rates for such a long time. Uh, the Federal Reserve has kept interest rates low, I would say probably artificially low, for a very long time period. And that has spurred this, both the stock market, the real estate market, and even the bond market onto pretty significant upside returns. And that made people very complacent with that kind of asset allocation. Almost any asset class seemed to be going up. You know, a person's house was going up, the stock market was going up. But once the in interest rates changed, and they certainly have this year, yeah. the Federal Reserve and jo Jerome Powell have gotten the word that inflation is up and they're wanting to solve it. And they believe one of their biggest tools is to raise interest rates to slow down economic activity. You know, to raise interest rates, make it harder to borrow, harder to do economic growth, uh, and therefore 
stifle inflation. That's the strategy. And that has really killed bonds. And so that person who is looking for the 40% of their portfolio to stabilize things, to keep them afloat, so to speak, has been extremely disappointed. And frankly, you know, the, we try to tell good, bad, and ugly how we're doing as far as our portfolios. But this has been one of our, in a sense, shiny moments because we have not had our clients exposed to significant long-term bond exposure. Uh, and that's the longer-term bonds have been the ones that got hit the most because they have been most sub- susceptible to interest rate hikes. And not to be kind of like patting you on the back or something, but is that allocation decision based purely on your outlook on interest rates continuing to rise over the years? Or what was the deciding factor on saying, hey, we, we don't need to follow this kind of rule. That's going to be way too much bond exposure. Like what, what led you to make that decision? Well, and it, and it can be dangerous if, if you really get outside of some of these long-term principles, such as the 60-40 rule, or, you know, kind of say that book, you know, the textbook of how you invest should be thrown out some. And I don't want to give people the wrong impression of how we, you know, totally got rid of bonds. But um, if you looked at history, and I do think you can learn from history, I think that's one of the most important uh, principles in investing. Uh, now, there's all kinds of innovation in a dynamic economy, and it, it, it's hard to apply principles from the past to a new set of facts, right? You have new technology, new innovations, but history has shown that, that we go through these cycles. And the long-term interest rate cycle that we were in, if you looked at a chart for, you know, for many, many decades, you saw almost this big mountain where you had back in the the 50s and 60s, you had fairly low interest rates, and then you had them climbing and infl- inflation climbing in the 70s and, and the early 80s. And you had those of our listeners who have been around the block a few times know that we've had double-digit inflation in the U.S. We had double-digit mortgage rates. You know, I know I have plenty of our clients who bought their houses in the 1970s or earlier, and they were seeing or 70s and 80s, and they were seeing uh, maybe 15, 16, 17 percent mortgage rates. You know, people are concerned right now that they're looking at 6% mortgages, but 17% is crazy, right? Yeah. But you could also at that time get a CD that was paying 15%. Which that's crazy too. I mean, So they do float together, you know, just in looking at that long-term rise in interest rates. And then over the last really 30 or 40 years, we've seen that come down significantly. So maybe a high, uh, I don't remember exactly what uh, inflation peaked at in the 1980s, early 1980s, uh, when Paul Volcker was credited with uh, really you know, killing inflation. But high double-digit inflation, high double-digit fixed interest rates, and then now to the today, or to you know, two years ago, where we had negative interest rates. You know, zero, almost 0%. Zero a few people who are, you know, have a savings account uh, or a CD were just being starved for any kind of yield at all. You know, 0. 0.0 something for their savings account, 0.0 something for a one-year CD. So interest rates had come down so significantly. And if you think in terms of historical cycles, you say, well, maybe we're going to ride that back up. Now, I don't know that I can predict anything in terms of uh, interest rates going back up to double digits. I think there's a risk. You know, We've seen the 9% figure, a headline 9% figure on inflation, and that's moderated some lately. But we've seen uh, inflation really be pretty ugly this year. And I don't know that we won't see double-digit inflation sometime in the next few years. It, it does depend on how our government responds and, and whether, the, whether we do the right things to, to tame inflation. But 
it was almost a no-brainer in my mind to say, don't really have long bonds. That's worked for a long time, but that's, that's probably not going to continue to work forever. And, and that, you know, having more short-term cash, even though it didn't have much of a yield, at least it wasn't going down like bonds were. Yeah. Well, and it might be helpful for our listeners who might be a little bit more novice on the investment side to explain, hey, why wouldn't I want a long-term bond? Um, I think one one little caveat here is we're kind of talking about the secondary market. So if you're purchasing a bond, and it, maybe you're purchasing it on the initial market, so you're saying, I'm buying this bond from whoever wants to loan, wants to have that, lend, that loan, I'm going to buy that bond from that company, the government, et cetera, et cetera. Let's say I have a 5% bond. So it's yielding me 5% per year. Now, the risk that you're having here is, say you put in $1,000 and you've got this guaranteed 5%. Now, a year from now, say Mike's correct and the interest rates go up to that 9%, bonds at the 9% time are going to be saying, hey, you got $1,000, you get 9% on that. Now, your original 5% bond, no one's going to want to pay you your original $1,000 to buy back that bond because in their minds, they're saying, well, why would I buy it from you? I could get 9% from the guy over here. So that's where you have the risk of, okay, well, you just can't get quite your money out of the principal there when you're looking to resell the bond. Yeah, I think that's a really important uh, point too because if a bond doesn't default, now that's the other risk, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, people say this is a contractual obligation. You call it a fixed asset because it's fixed in term and fixed in interest rate. All that's fixed. I'm supposed to get my money back at a certain rate in a certain time period. But people need to realize that a guarantee is only as good as the person or organization making that promise, right? It's a yeah. promise. They're guaranteeing something. They're promising to pay your money back, but it is only based on that. And so that's that's one piece is to look at a bond in terms of, okay, what's the risk of default? But most of the time, uh, bonds don't default. And if, you, and if you hold them to term, you do get your 5% and you get your principal back. Yep. And so if a person can understand that and be patient for the time period that they bought that bond for, they'll be fine. But what happens is people look at their statements every month. Yeah. And there's this idea of mark to market or just basically saying, what is this bond worth today if you're going to sell it? Or just like your house, you may not want to sell your house, but you might check Zillow and say, well, what it's worth today. Yeah. And so that means that's that term mark to market, basically saying, well, what is it worth today if I were to sell it today? Even if I'm not, what is it worth today? What would somebody else buy for it or pay for it? That's the, the key thing with bonds is people don't realize that you know there is a current market for those secondary bonds, but they're based on interest rates that are being offered today. Yeah. And I think that's a really good, good and important point, Taylor. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to clarify that in case people are listening and they go, okay, that makes sense, that makes sense. And then maybe they get to the end and they go, wait, but why does that make sense? So I, I hope that helped kind of clarify the, the basic underlying of what the risk in bonds is or fixed income investments during a rising inflationary type environment. A rising interest rate environment. Yep, that's a good point. Well, so it sounds like you're saying this isn't a great rule for people in a rising interest rate environment. Does that mean it's a better rule in a lowering interest rate environment? Or is the 60-40 rule maybe missing on one side in one environment and missing on the other in the other? Because it well, seems like really you're almost 50 about, We're really talking about, in one sense, the 40 that's disappointed so much. People who say, yeah. okay, I'm going to put 60% of my portfolio in the, quote, stock market. And obviously, there's lots of stock markets. There's a market for every single stock, right? And we want to be careful about how we generalize. But we do. We talk about the stock market. And people who put 60% of their portfolio, if they're 
if they're well-informed, if they've had some experience, they realize that that means volatility. That means that you're going to see that when you look on your statement, you might from one month to the next see some volatility. But you don't expect that kind of roller coaster ride on the 40, on the bonds. And so, yeah, if you have an interest rate environment where uh, they're dropping you know, significantly over time, then you get kind of a bonus as a bondholder. You're not only getting the yield you thought you were going to get, but you're seeing that mark-to-market appreciation on the principal of your bond. Now your bond is worth more if you want to sell it. And that's the kind of environment people love when you have low interest rates. You're basically making money and capital appreciation on both your stock and bond portfolio and probably your your real estate portfolio. This is the danger of having artificially low interest rates. Uh, people are not used to the price of money being maybe what it should be. And that causes them to think that there's no risk. Yeah. Um, and, you know, ultimately you see risk come back to the market when someone says, you know, um, I want my money back or I want to, you know, I'm thinking in a different time period or there's nothing to back this up. You know, the, uh, there's not enough earnings. Ultimately, uh, bonds, while they are a promise and a guarantee, they are still based upon the earnings paying ability of a company. Uh, so the company or the government that uh, is issuing those bonds, certainly in the, com- the course of a private company, they have to have earnings that can support being able to pay the interest and principal on those bonds. With the government, obviously, they can tax. Um, yeah. And that's, that's one of the biggest concerns right now is can the U.S. government or any government worldwide right now, virtually, can they afford to continue to issue bonds that they'll have to pay back at some point? Yeah. Uh, you know, and can they tax their people enough or can they inflate enough through printing uh, to be able to pay, uh, pay those pay those bonds back? But obviously, if you're paying bonds back in an inflationary environment, then you're being paid back with cheaper and cheaper dollars or your the money isn't worth what you thought it was over a course of time. Well, so is it harder for companies to pay back these bonds at this time because their cost of goods and cost of services to continue functioning is just rising and rising, Absolutely. and they've got this essentially a fixed loan on the back end? Well, if they have a long-term, th- this is the smart thing that a number of companies did with the lower close to negative interest rates that we've had. They, they issued more bonds, fixing their cost of borrowing at lower interest rates. And so th- if they did that, they were smart. And certainly, I believe that if the government would have been smart, they'd have done that themselves. Um, most of you who have listened for a while know that I, that the government isn't necessarily that smart. Uh, they, they don't have the right kind of incentives. And, you know, you can go into, well, it's really we the people who are the government. And what are we asking our government officials and politicians to do? We're asking them to promise lots of stuff that they can't deliver. Um, that's a whole different rabbit trail, right? But, yeah, but yeah it, it depends on what the interest rates are when you're issuing the bonds and whether you can keep up. That, that is one of the major concerns of the bond market. And really, anyone who's a citizen in our country right now is to say, okay, now that interest rates are going up and we have this load of debt, both private but, but certainly public debts, that are going to have to pay at higher interest rates, that means a, a bigger portion of our federal budget, for example, is going to have to just be paid for interest. Yeah. And that means... If it's being paid for interest, then it can't be paid for all the things that we think government should do, whether it's you know, military and aircraft carriers and, and uh, helping Ukraine or, or um, 
you know, education or healthcare, all the things that lots of people think the government should be doing. Well, there's less money to do it. There's less money for, for supporting social security. There's less money for Medicare. There's less money if you're, if some of that is going to pay interest on the debt. So it sounds like you're telling me my taxes are going up. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I didn't say that, but I think that's a natural, reasonable conclusion um, that a person could say is that since we as a society are wanting lots from our government, um, either in the form of direct taxation, you're going to pay higher rates, or through the, the more insidious tax of inflation, making your dollars worth less, yeah. Uh, you're going to be taxed one way or the other. And that, that's a dangerous time period. And that's one of the reasons why we think that people should take a critical look at some of these some of these rules of thumb, like the 60-40 rule, to say, okay, is that really the best way to allocate capital now, given the underlying causal relationships between interest rates, inflation, and asset prices? So for our listeners who maybe don't yet have an advisor and haven't yet called us, <laughs> um, what would you tell them if they're saying, well, maybe I was doing the 60-40 rule, it's not working for me. What what do I do now? Is there a, a different rule I should be following? What What's your advice to those listeners? Well, one of the biggest things that uh, we think people should do is is not panic anytime they're, you know, if, if you've allocated your money toward a certain strategy, it usually doesn't pay to just jump out of that strategy without thinking about it. Uh, if they're not confident in the current strategy, if it is a 60-40 thing where the 40% of their portfolio is in bonds, sometimes people act after the fact, right? I think that bonds are more attractive today than they were. And I don't, I'm not, you know, again, this is, uh, our, with our disclaimer, we're not making any particular recommendations. I'm not saying buy a bunch of long-term bonds now, but you don't want to just act after the fact. And you want to look at your portfolio with the current, the current scenario in mind, but longer term principles applying to it and say, okay, well, maybe I should have it evaluated again. If I, if I don't have confidence in my current strategy, maybe I get a second opinion. Maybe I ask for a little deeper knowledge and a deeper uh, look under the hood of what I've got and what I own in my portfolio. Okay. So I, I still didn't hear any kind of go-to rule. So is there a rule to replace this rule or not necessarily? I wouldn't say there's a great rule to replace the 60-40 rule because the 60-40 rule is trying to make it too simple. And as I said at the beginning, we do start with, okay, how much equity risk can a person really take and what do they have to have? But we also look at many more details with regard to their financial situation. And that's why it's really crucial to start with a a core planning uh, financial plan versus you know, investing is just one piece of the plan, but actually looking at, okay, what are my sources of retirement income? How long do I plan to work? Um, what kind of risk can I take? Do I have other obligations or goals in the meantime before retirement? All those things can be quantified to some degree or another and put into a, a plan. Now, a plan is only as good as the assumptions, but it's crucial that a person actually look at the big picture and have that kind of quarterbacking you know, see the whole field, so to speak, um, before they really go with one of those 60-40 rules or 80-20 rules or whatever it might be. Um, so I, I don't want to say throw that rule out, but I also say it's, it's, a, it's a, little bit more, a little bit more complicated or sophisticated than that. Okay. 
What about clients who might be overweighted in a specific holding? I think another concern about this rule is when you tell people just to go and do 60% X and 40% Y, it doesn't necessarily tell them that within that you need to diversify. Um, And I've seen this with, I've talked to friends and um, colleagues and oftentimes you hear specifically in like 401k accounts, people will say, well, I was told to put in a little bit of bonds and a little bit of stocks. So I picked two funds and I'm good to go. (laughs) So what do you want to say to our listeners who are maybe looking at their 401k and going, well, it's dropping right now, but I'm only in two holdings because you said 60, 40 and I did 60 in stock A and 40 in, well, 60 in mutual fund of various stocks and 40 in mutual fund of Various Well, and they might even funds. have done uh, just one fund, right? One yeah. holding in their 401k that is a balanced 60-40 fund. Yeah. Right? So they, they've got one holding, but they have to keep in mind that if they're in a mutual fund, and, mo- and most 401ks are offering these kind of diversified portfolios of funds and a choice of funds to, to go into, um, they have some diversification there. It's a question of do they understand the diversification? Can they peel back the hood or you know look under the hood, so to speak, of... Uh, what do I actually own? What is in that one fund or those two funds? Is there adequate diversification there? We like to be more specific and more targeted. You know, it's kind of the opposite of a target date fund. The target date fund that you see in your 401k is oftentimes taking a specific date, oftentimes the expected retirement date, and saying, okay, I know I'm going to you know, want to retire around this time period, so let me just have the fund manager plug and play for me there. Uh, and I won't do anything from there. And, and that, can, that can be really simplified. Yeah. In our view, that's a little bit too simplified, oftentimes because you're in funds of funds and there's you know, multiple layers of fees on there. So it really depends on the options that a person has in their 401k. I, but your bigger, larger point is how to evaluate diversification. And that is, in essence, what the, the 60-40 thing is trying to do, is saying, okay, well, allocate 60% to the equity markets and 40% to the, to the bond markets. But how you carve up these markets and, and how you observe them, uh, how you decide to allocate toward them is a little bit more uh, complicated than that. And again, I, I don't want to go too far in saying how, because uh, we can over complicate it in, in the sense of saying, well, you know, this precise amount. No, no advisor, no investor can tell you precisely how much to have in various asset classes or uh, portions of the market. But that is the principle of diversification and saying, well, what kind of risk do I have? What will I be assuming right now with regard to the kind of risk that might be out there? Okay. One of the biggest things is that um, we do talk about these allocation rules, starting with simple principles like 60-40. But but we also, again, talk about planning and how much a person really does need to be saving, investing. And, and you know, one of the biggest problems that we see in plans is that people don't put enough away. They start too late and they don't have enough saved. And so there's no you know, magic solution that the stock market is really going to catch them up. Now, they might get lucky over a few years where they hit it right. Maybe they've, they bought something that did really well or they, their particular fund in 401k did really well. But if they're counting on you know, a particular asset class like the stock market to really catch them up a lot, that's a recipe for danger. Our experience is people who look at, okay, how much do I really need to be putting away? And am I doing that? Am I saving the adequate amount for what my lifestyle needs to be in retirement? That's much more important 
than the allocation of it. Yeah. And I, I do want to kind of add on to that. It's never too soon to start saving. And while there are amounts that you should ideally be saving, it's never too small to start saving either. So if you're saying, I can't save at all, I'm sure you could say, well, you know what? Maybe I can save $5 this week or maybe $500 this week. I mean, whatever it looks like for your current budget. And then just try to test that and try to say, hey, can I do a little bit more? Can I do this a little bit better? The sooner you can work on building up your asset base, the more secure you'll be for those future goals that you have down the road. And like Mike said, the investment market's not going to solve a problem of you not having saved over the years. So if if you're not getting started, you're going to really greatly need to increase your savings to make up your lost time. And that's the problem is sometimes people try to make up lost time by taking too much risk and that can put them even in worse shape if they're if they're taking that risk at the wrong time. Yeah. And they're and they're trying to implement things with a, a you know simple rules without understanding the foundation for those rules and what kind of risks those rules might uh, encounter in a, in a different kind of marketplace. And I, and I would emphasize the the point you made about diversification, you know, uh, it, it does come down to if you know, if you really do know, and no one has this good crystal ball that's you know perfectly clear about the future, but it, the more you know, the more you can concentrate and say, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, put more eggs in one basket. But the more, the more you're not clear about the future, the more the, the future is cloudy. And it is for all of us in many ways, the more you need to diversify and make sure that you don't have all those eggs in the same basket. Yeah. So Mike, do you have any kind of closing thoughts on the 60-40 rule? Well, again, I think it's uh, it does have some foundation in reality about stability and and um, you know how interest rates will impact a portfolio. But I think people need to have that understanding. And, and I'd, I'd say, you know, look for an advisor who has um, a greater understanding of long-term cycles both interest rate cycles uh, and valuation cycles with regard to different asset classes. Uh, and then you can make more sense of, okay, what percentage should I have in, in various places? Okay. Sounds great. Yeah. Do you have any other thoughts about this 60-40 rule? I think it's helpful to note that if there's any kind of financial rule that you're confused about, there's always going to be a wealth of resources to get that clarity from. I like to say that we can be that wealth wealth of resources. And so if someone's saying, hey, I really don't understand what's going on here, reach out to us, reach out to your local advisor and just say, hey, is this something I should be considering? Should I be changing to have this kind of strategy? Why may or may not this have this work for me? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and even further than that, um, there's no such thing as a stupid question. You're the boss of your financial advisor. You should be asking questions, even if it feels like, I don't. I should know more about this, or I'm embarrassed because I don't know what they're talking about. You know, tell the advisor to slow down and be more clear as far as uh, how they're explaining the way your assets are allocated and what your plan looks like. I think that's really important. And with that, I'd like to thank everyone for listening to our podcast. Hopefully, you found this helpful, and we invite you to to follow us and like us on all the social media: Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. LinkedIn, and so forth. Our platforms are saved as Altius Financial, and it's typed as all as one word. So you should see our logo as the profile picture. And we're open to suggestions on other things our clients or listeners would like to hear about. Um, and we also invite you to tune in on Tuesdays as we post 
Finance Terminology Tuesdays with a new topic each week. So if you're interested in setting up a financial plan or just learning about how we do things, how how our Altius financial philosophy is being implemented for our clients, please reach out to us directly at either taylor at altiusfinancial.com or you can check out our website. You can contact me, michael at altiusfinancial.com. Thanks for joining us and have a happy Friday. Capitalize on your Friday. Take care, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Have a good weekend. Yeah.